This morning we are continuing our series that uh, we're, we're beginning for this summer and walking through for the rest of it uh, called Be Set Free, and we're looking at more specifically the seven deadly sins within that. And the purpose of this sermon series is to help identify some of these sins in our own lives, not for the purpose of guilt and shame, but for the purpose of finding freedom and life as we bring these things into the light and ask for forgiveness from Jesus. Now, like I said, the sin that we're going to be talking about is taken from the seven deadly sins. So I just want to give a bit of an explanation where we even get those from, because might just seem a little bit odd that we're taking it from there. But back in the fourth century, uh, a few hundred years ago, there lived a man named Evagrius Ponticus. And for the latter half of his life, he lived as a monk in a monastery, and he had a lot of theological writings, and he spent a lot of his time studying. And as he did so, one of the largest portions of his work, or the one that he spent a lot of time in, was coming up with a list of evil thoughts and temptations that all sinful behavior stem from. And the purpose or the reason that he wrote this list or compiled it was to help others in their faith to identify these things in their lives, to identify temptation, their own strengths and weaknesses, and to help them bring into freedom and life by, by bringing these things before Jesus, asking for forgiveness. And so he wrote a book, and he saw that certain temptations, again, would come up again and again that would lead us away from our faith. And so he said... Let's talk about these as moral guidelines, as, as ways in which we can flourish in our faith. And that was the point of it. And it wasn't until the 6th century, a couple hundred years later, that Pope Gregory I, he took Evagrius' list and he compiled it into seven specific categories. And these are seven practices that he said would kill a person's spiritual identity and potential which is why they went on to be labeled as the mortal sins or the deadly sins. And that's why we have these seven different categories for them. But that's what sin does to us. It kills our spiritual potential. It leads us into death and disintegration every time. And it's because sin is going against the way that God created the world the way he instilled it with natural rules and laws, because when God first set creation in motion, he made it with natural rules and laws that govern the way that we live in this world, right? So gravity, for instance, is one of those rules. What goes up must come down. And we know that this is one of the principles of the world, because if you jump, you land back down on your feet. And nobody is out there saying, man, the law of gravity, that's just stupid. It's ridiculous. It's dumb. And I don't have to follow it, right? Because if we were to meet a person like that, if they were to jump out of a plane with no parachute or off the top of a building, it would lead to death and disintegration. When we don't obey the ways that God has created this world with the natural rules and laws, it always leads to death and disintegration in our lives. So when we go against these things, it leads us to the same place. We get hurt when we do not live in this world the way that God has created us to live in this world when we don't live by the rules and laws that he's made it. And that's the way sin works in our lives, right? God created boundaries for us to live well within, to have life and meaning and purpose, and yet we live outside of those boundaries. We all choose to go our own way. We cross them, and we get hurt in the process at times. And since we brought sin into the world, death and disintegration are only becoming more and more. Right? In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that all of creation is in bondage to decay because of sin. And in verse 22, he says, We know 
that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, as children, the redemption of our bodies. But we are decaying, even down to our very DNA. Uh, scientists say that when a child is born and the parents pass on the genetic information to the child, that with every generation there's somewhere between 30 to 100 mutations within our genes. So ways in which the genes don't assemble properly within our bodies as they're supposed to. And even though it's only 100, or 100 mutations within each generation, these mutations are responsible for things like Down syndrome, arthritis, cancer, diabetes, cystic fibrosis, and the list goes on. Our bodies in this world are decaying. And not just our bodies, but so is the world. Right? We look to the pollution in our air and water that's poisoning our environment. We look to the beauty of the trees that are mangled by disease in different places. Ecosystems falling apart and animals going extinct. All of creation is suffering because we have chosen to live outside of the bounds that God has created for us in this world. But that is not the final word. That is not the hope we have in this world. When we go back to Romans 8, Paul goes on to say that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Amen. Not only will creation itself one day be freed from the bondage of our sin, of our brokenness that we have put onto the world, but so will our bodies. We are eagerly awaiting our adoption as the children of God, the redemption of our bodies. Jesus, in, in Revelation 21, gives us an image of what that's going to look like. He says that one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. All of these things will be gone forever. And that is the promise we have in Jesus if we choose to live for him. If we choose to obey him, that those who are lame or physically disabled in this life will one day dance and rejoice in the kingdom of God, that those who don't have a voice here in this earth will one day praise and worship him with a voice more beautiful than we can imagine, that the hurt and the brokenness will be mended and made whole beyond the bitterness of what once was. And while we carry this hope in us, we're not there yet, right? As Bryce reminded us, we're in kind of this in-between phase I want to share this, this quote from C.S. Lewis. He puts it like this. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see in nature, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that we will get in, God willing. Someday we will get in. So we're living in the gap between the place where we have redemption and we see decay, right? Every sin has been conquered in Jesus through the cross. He has set us free and has claimed authority over every evil. And yet we still battle with sin. We still wrestle with it. We still struggle to allow God to mold and transform us at times. And that is the tension in which we live our lives. That is the place that we are called to live as followers of Jesus. So with that as, as the framework for our, our position in life, the way we see how we live in this world, how do we live in victory over sin, knowing that we have the victory over sin as Jesus has paid the price for us and yet still wrestling with it, still battling with it? 
And I want to look at just three aspects today of how we can find life in this place, in this in-between, in this tension. First is to go to the root of our sin. The second is to forgive others. And the third is to stay focused on Jesus. Probably heard these before. Uh, but first, we go to the root of our sin. One of the reasons why we can see such little spiritual fruit in our lives is often because we're focused on dealing with the sin, the head of the flower, and not the root of the problem. I remember back when I was in Briarcrest, a college in Saskatchewan, middle of nowhere, um, we would often meet together as a dorm to pray for one another. And I remember it was, it was such a beautiful place where we could share our struggles with one another. But by far the most common struggle that was shared in that dorm was with lust, was with watching pornography and the temptation within that. And I remember one of, my, one of my friends, the guy that I'd met there in the dorm, he opened up to me about how much he was wrestling with this and how he just didn't seem to find any victory over his temptation. And he was kind of hopeless within that to actually overcome it, to find strength over his lust. And I remember one day he invited me into his room to pray with him. And as I came into his room, I noticed a big calendar on the wall. And it had a bunch of X marks on the days, but it wasn't every single day. There was a couple missing. And so I know it wasn't just like him taking track of time. And so I was just curious about it. And I asked him after we spent some time in prayer, I'm like, what are the X's on your calendar for? And he, he looked over and he says, those are the days where I've failed, where I've gave into the temptation to look at porn and he would mark it on his calendar. And I, I, I share this story because I think that we can often take this approach with regards to our sin. I think that oftentimes we see an area of brokenness in our own lives, a place where we know that sin is happening, where we are weak and we often give in to temptation. And instead of looking deeper into what is causing us to turn to that sin, we instead focus on the sin itself. Right? We can often think that sin is the only problem, but sin often is the evidence of a problem. Cain murdered Abel, not because he just wanted to murder. He woke up and felt like it one day, but because he was jealous of his brother Abel, right? Jonah, for instance, he ran away from God, not because he wanted um, to run away from God because he thought that was the right decision, but because he wanted wrath upon the Ninevites. People don't gossip because they think gossiping is good. They do it because of lack of confidence, putting others down to build themselves up. And if we never go to the root of our own brokenness, if we never actually understand what it is that's causing us to turn to our sin, then we continue to fall in our sin at times. We become frustrated with ourselves until eventually we lose hope of ever finding freedom over our sin. Never finding victory because all the time is dealt dealing with the surface problem because the root often gives life to our sin. And if we cut the root out, the sin too will usually die. It's kind of like a weeding a dandelion, which I'm sure many of you have experienced before. I looked that up, and apparently they can grow roots up to 10 feet deep in the ground. Uh, but for those of you who have uh, tried to pluck the dandelions out, if you only take the flower, does that get rid of the weed itself? No, of course not. They're like a hydra. The three more pop up after it. But in order to actually get rid of the weed, you need to cut the root out. You need to cut the entire root out. If you just pick what's on the surface, It'll grow back. So what is the root of your sin? Is there something that you habitually turn back to in your life that you rely on? Because all sin, remember, as we talked about last week, is an attempt to hit the mark, to make the goal, to achieve the purpose, but always failing. 
That's what sin is, an attempt but always failing. So what is the root of your sin? And if you don't know, the way to find out is to sit at the feet of Jesus. And ironically, it's actually pretty hard work to do that at times. Our work isn't to dig up the root itself, right? But to acknowledge that there is broken within, within us, to bring that to Jesus, to ask him for help and to allow him to shape us. And that means that when temptation comes, we ask him for the help that we need, rely on him in the moment that we need his strength and help. And when you do fail, as we inevitably do in life, come back to him as quickly as possible, even in the very next moment after you sin. That is hard work. Allowing God into the deepest and darkest places of our lives, recognizing that we do indeed have a pit within ourselves that only the grace and love of Jesus can fill. So when you recognize sin in your life, don't try to deal with it on your own. Don't muster all the strength you can find because it won't be enough. We, our role is to turn to Jesus, to seek him in every moment. The only way to overcome is to be still before the Lord and to wait patiently for him. In Ephesians chapter 2, we get this image that we are God's workmanship, that he has created us in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. But there's this word workmanship here. If you've ever looked a little bit more into it, it's, it's usually this idea of, or an image of an artist's work. It's their masterpiece, for instance. So if you think of the, the statue of David, for instance, that was Michelangelo's masterpiece, his, his work of art, his workmanship. But the statue began as a block of marble, and he would slowly chip away until the rock was shaped into his masterpiece. And that is the work that God is doing in you and me. That he's cutting away the dead parts of our lives, the roots of our sin, and shaping us into his masterpiece as we allow him to transform us. And it is hard, painful work, but it is worth it. And in the end, God always makes a masterpiece. So that's the first step in overcoming our sin, is to go to the root, to find out what the root is by going to Jesus, sitting at his feet, and asking him for the help that we need in those moments. The second step in finding victory over our sin is through forgiveness. Jesus' words on forgiveness in the Bible are pretty clear and they're pretty heavy at points too. In, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching his disciples about prayer and then right after he gives us the Lord's Prayer, he says this, If you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their sin, your Father will not forgive your sin. All of us have sinned. All of us have made mistakes. And we have all likewise been hurt by the sins of others. But if we hold on to the bitterness and take grudges against one another, that only strengthens the root of sin in our lives. It only sets it further into our being and allows the root to grow. And the problem we often face in forgiving others is that we decide to forgive based on our emotions and not based on the truth. The truth is that we can forgive all knowing that we ourselves have been forgiven a greater debt in Jesus. The truth is that, but the sin that we have done against our God is greater than anything that other people will do against us. But at times we allow our feelings to guide our morality. We allow our feelings to shape the way that we think we should forgive people. So we create our own sense of morality of what's right and wrong and what's forgivable and what isn't. And so we ask the question, is it okay to forgive the person who abuses another? Is it okay? Is it possible to forgive the drunk driver who 
took the life of those children. And we may think that true forgiveness is impossible because of our emotions, but at those times is when we need the strength of Jesus. We need the truth to carry us through our emotions. Uh, Corey Ten Boom is a woman who I think gives us a great example of what that looks like. I want to share a little bit of her story here with you. Uh, she wrote an incredible book called The Hiding Place, and she lived during the era of the World War II, and as she was growing up, they would often hide Jews in their homes to save them from the Nazis, and eventually she and her family were captured and sent off to a concentration camp, and there she experienced horrors that most of us couldn't even fathom in our lifetime, that we wouldn't even want to imagine, but after the war, even though her father and sister both passed away, she was released, and later she went throughout Germany preaching a message of forgiveness for their sins, speaking to the very ones that put her in that concentration camp. And she shares a story of how at one particular church service she is preaching this message of forgiveness, and she sees this man come up to her to come speak with her, and she realized that it was one of the former guards who actually caused her so much abuse within the concentration camp. And as he approached her, he, he shared how he was impacted by her message, how he was cut to the heart, and how he was amazed that God's love could forgive even his sins. And all the while, he held out his hand to shake Corey's. And here's, here's how she responded. I want to read for you a little bit. I, who preach so often of the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus had died for this man, so I prayed, Lord, forgive me and help me to forgive him. And in that moment, she still didn't raise her hand. She still struggled with it, and she said that she could not. And this was her next prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And at this, she reached back out and shook his hand, and she shared that in that moment, she felt a warmth rise from her hand to fill her entire body. And in that moment, she experienced God's love in a tangible way that she had never experienced before. She said, I so discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than it is our goodness that the world's healing hinges upon, but on his when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. If we trust in him, he will give us what we need. We can see the horrors done in this world to us and to others, and we can ask, how is it possible on earth to forgive people? And the answer is, it's not possible by yourself. In these moments, all we can do is rely on Jesus for the help that we need to forgive those around us. And Corey went on to share this. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I, never, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. If, if Corey's willingness to be obedient in such a difficult place, to continue with the truth despite how her emotions were carrying her, if she was willing to experience God's love through that, I wonder what's waiting on the other end of your forgiveness. I wonder the beauty and the love of God that you can see if you're willing to take that step of obedience. Forgiveness is not easy and we can't do it on our own, but it is how we live in victory over sin, which leads us to the third way that we can live well in this tension, to keep our fo focus on Jesus, to keep our eyes set on him. In, in John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Part of the reason we fall into sin and continue to stay there because we fail to mature. We fail to remain in him at points in our lives. And there, there are times where we can treat our faith kind of like a New Year's resolution type faith where we begin it, we start a good habit, you take up your cross every day and as soon as maybe it becomes inconvenient, maybe work starts to take up more time, you get bored of it or tired or you fail to see the purpose, we give up. In Ephesians 4, verse 14, we, we get an image of what this New Year's resolution type faith looks like. It looks like being infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men. Does your life feel like that? Does it feel like you're being tossed and blown around by the wind and the waves of confusion instead of standing firm? Have you taken your eyes off Jesus? Again, don't be ashamed. In these moments, we all make mistakes. We all take our eyes off Jesus in moments. That's why I love the story of Peter throughout the Gospels. He continually does so, and yet Jesus continually loves him and leads him back. One of my, one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, yes, I know, favorite stories, they're all my favorite stories, um, but one of them is when Jesus calls Peter out onto the water to walk alongside him, and Peter steps out of the boat and miraculously walks on water. It's incredible. As Jesus calls him, he had the faith to step out into uncertainty, into a place where his emotions were probably yelling at him. The waves are unsteady. You can't step out and walk on water. And he trusted Jesus to take care of him in that moment. But also, in the book of Matthew, we read that Peter saw the wind. He was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter took his gaze off of Jesus for just a moment. He saw the water and the waves around him. He saw his friends in the boat behind him struggling to keep up, to stay afloat. And in that moment, he began to fear. When we, when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we can be filled with fear. But he can also work miraculous things through our obedience if we're willing to trust in him. But let me, let me point something out in the story as well. The storm and the wind and the waves were still under God's control. He was still allowing that to happen for a reason. No matter how terrifying it might have seemed to Peter in that moment, Jesus had the authority to calm the wind and the waves. You see, the only power that our enemy has is to lie. It's smoke and mirrors. That all, that's all he has as his tools to attack us with. He has no power over us because Jesus has all the authority in heaven and on earth. So when the enemy frightens you with lies, when he yells at you that you are guilty, that you do have reason to be ashamed, remember that these are lies. He holds no real power over us because in Jesus, we have victory over our enemy. But when we take our eyes off Jesus, we can start to believe those lies. So if you want to make a difference in this world, if you want to see miraculous things happen, if you want to see mountains move in people's lives that were thought immovable, it doesn't start by trying harder. It starts by sitting at the feet of Jesus. It will come as you set your gaze on Jesus. The more time you spend with him, the more impact you will have in the kingdom. The more he will allow you to work alongside him. Spending time with him every day so you don't get your goals mixed up is what we are called to, to take up our cross every day and to realize that there is great beauty and joy within that for us as we do so. And as much as it is difficult to pick up our cross every day, he gives along with the command the strength to do so. This morning, we have the opportunity to celebrate the communion meal together. 
And this is the place where we come to the feet of Jesus, recognizing that it is only by his sacrifice, it is only by the body and the blood of Jesus put on the cross that we are redeemed and set free, that we have hope. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, we read this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You and I need the cross because without it, we're stuck in our own sin. So this morning, we have the opportunity to partake communion together, to celebrate and remember that it is only by his work that we are set free, not by our own, not by our ability, our ability to be stronger, to do more impactful things, but by recognizing that our strength comes from him. So I want to give you space. If there is there something within this time that you need to confess or bring your focus back to Jesus, please take this time. Um, we have four stations set up throughout the room in the sanctuary here. Feel free to come to each one or uh, to whatever one's closest. Uh, our elder Ed is going to be passing around the plate as well. Uh, if you can't make it to the element table yourself, just please raise your hand. But remember that he submitted and laid down his life so that we could find freedom and life in him. So let me pray for us, and then you can come forward and take the elements. Father, you are good to us. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to pay the price for our sin, knowing that we could never pay it ourselves. Jesus, we thank you that you were faithful to be obedient to the Father, even unto death, even unto the place where it led you to the cross. And even in that place, it was for the joy set before you that you endured the pain and hardship and suffering of the cross. It was for the joy of our redemption. Father, let us not think that it is by our ability or our, our love or ability to, to do as much, Father, but to recognize that it is only as we rely on you that we find freedom in life. Father, in these places, we need you to help identify the roots of our sin. Father, we're broken, and the part of the beauty of that is that we can rely on you in this. So, Father, show us the new creation you want to create in us. And, Father, as we are led to your table this morning, I pray that you would meet us here. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.